Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Africa podcast with me, Kiri Naidu. In this latest installment in a series focusing on Africa's financial technology or fintech industry, we bring you conversations with leading experts and share actionable insights addressing challenges and opportunities facing managers and leaders working on the continent. For those new to it, fintech refers to technology-driven delivery of financial services to consumers. And it has tremendous potential for the continent, particularly given that around 57% of Africans, around 95 million people, remain unbanked. Despite, or perhaps because of this, the fintech sector in Africa has been surging in recent years. Its growth has been fueled by a youthful and urbanizing population, increasing mobile phone penetration, falling data costs, limited physical banking, an increasingly favorable regulatory environment, and of course, COVID-19 has had a significant impact on the uptake of digital banking as lockdown measures encourage the digitally shy online. In this series, we'll speak to some of Africa's most prominent fintech leaders on what it takes or will take to build the sector on the continent. I'm delighted to welcome Andy Jury, the CEO of Mukuru. Mukuru was started way back in 2004, so it can hardly be called a startup anymore, although the energy of the company is still as innovative and entrepreneurial as the day it began. Mukuru is listed as one of the leading 150 cross-border businesses globally in the 2020 FXC Intelligence Incumbents versus Challenges in Cross-Border Payments and won Global Brands Magazine International Award for the most innovative online remittance app, South Africa 2021. But it is about so much more than remittances. I think it's safe to say that it's at the cutting edge of fintech evolution in Africa and a champion of financial inclusion as a development imperative on the continent. Also joining us in conversation is one of McKinsey's leading authorities on the subject, Uzair Gina. Uzair is a partner in McKinsey's Johannesburg office and leads McKinsey's corporate and transaction banking work across Africa, and he has worked with a number of African fintechs. Andy and Uzair, thank you for being here and welcome to the McKinsey Africa podcast. Hello, Kerry, and thank you for having me. Great to be back with you, Kerry. Really looking forward to this conversation with, uh, with Andy. Andy, I'd love to hear more about Makuru, in particular its origin and how it came to be really about, as your mission states, giving people the tools to take control of their financial journeys. Thanks, Kerry. As you said, Makuru was founded in 2004, uh, and our founders were looking to address a particular problem at the time, which was how to deal with the hyperinflationary environment uh, in Zimbabwe in the early 2000s. And whilst things have moved on quite a bit since then, the spirit of solving problems endures. So if we were trying to sort of encapsulate uh, what we are and what we do in an elevator pitch, we see ourselves as a next generation financial services platform for Africa's emerging consumers. So it's really about the provision of mobile led digital financial services to underserved communities. And in so doing, we're aiming to enable access to financial services that are safe, affordable and reliable. Most of our customers come to us from the informal markets. In fact, you know, from our perspective, the vast majority of financial transactions on the African continent happen in an environment that is uh, uh, informal, over-the-counter, uses cash-to-cash, uh, and has to be synchronous. And so what we try to do is to position ourselves at the intersection of the informal and formal financial services ecosystems 
uh, and look to take our customers on a journey that involves small but continuous improvements and changes and ultimately leads to a large you know, step change uh, in, in uh, I suppose, the journey towards digitization or financial inclusion. We've processed over 100 million uh, transactions through our platform uh, in the last decade. Uh, and we're one of Africa's largest remittance-led fintechs. We've built a network that spans 90 countries across the globe, but our focus is and remains uh, in the emerging market segment in Africa. Andy, you took over as CEO in 2017, I believe. And before that, you were at Edcon as chief executive of their specialty stores division. What was it about the role that got you personally excited? Kerry, I've, I've got a background in financial services uh, and technology consulting, and I spent a long time in, in retail where you know, I loved the instantaneous nature of the feedback loops that you get uh, from engaging with customers. Uh, and I've always loved the idea of uh, being involved in a business that looked to use technology to leapfrog or disrupt uh, outdated way of doing things uh, to solve problems in generating value uh, for customers. And so, you know, prior to joining Makuru, I really enjoyed what I was doing in a sort of cerebral or intellectual level, but uh, finding ways to get people to buy an extra pair of sneakers or to get excited about a three for two deal on HP pencils is interesting, but it doesn't necessarily fulfill your soul. And I think the amazing thing that was immediately apparent to me when I was interviewing with Makuru was that there was this orange energy coursing through the veins of just about everybody um, you know, I encountered uh, through that uh, recruitment process. And so the combination of, you know, practical applications to uh, world-class technologies to, to, you know, fundamentally transform people's lives uh, underpinned by, you know, a purpose. Uh, and I suppose, you know, the recognition that certainly in an, you know, an emerging market African environment, being able to engage with people on the streets, uh, listen to their problems, put yourselves in their customer's shoes, uh, and, and uh, you know, assist in, in building technologies or, or solutions that were going to uh, solve their problems uh, is immensely fulfilling. And so, you know, I love the idea of technology assisting in financial inclusion. I fundamentally believe that, uh, you know, financial inclusion is a foundational cornerstone of a healthy uh, and prosperous society or economy. Andy, as you're talking about this kind of shift from being a kind of remittance-led player into a much broader financial services offering, what do you think are the kind of really the underserved needs that Africans are waiting for? So I think it's a great question. So, so alongside money transfers, uh, both domestic and international in a broad sense, you know, I, I think as people move into a slightly more formalized uh, financial services ecosystem, the things that are important to us are also important to them. So ensuring that you can have access to digital stores of value, that you can find the pathways to facilitate a broader bouquet of payments, particularly those that bridge the cash and digital divide, and then you know access to a broader bouquet of derived financial services products, such as insurance, savings, loans, um, you know, I suppose, ancillary uh, value-added services uh, that link to that. And so we've seen our ecosystem develop over time as we've listened to what our customers need and want and looked to provide uh, that broader bouquet of products that are uh, ancillary to the sort of initial entry point that we had, uh, which was uh, you know, the provision of uh, cross-border uh, money transfers. And Andy, for many of our listeners who may not understand some of the dynamics that we have on the continent, you know, can you talk a little bit maybe on two points, a little bit on the remittance side and on the lending side? of, you know, before Makuru or in the absence of Makuru-like players, what are the customers actually doing? 
I think one of the things that we've tried to do as we've evolved our business is to do exactly this, to walk in the shoes of our customers, to understand where their friction points are and you know how we can then build the products and services solutions to address those. In an informal money transfer ecosystem, which there are asymmetries of information, nobody knows uh, how big it is, but this is at least two thirds to 70% of the way in which transactions still flow on the African continent. If you were in Johannesburg looking to send money home to Lelongwe, for example, you'd have to take time off work so there's opportunity costs, lost wages, get into a taxi, which costs you money, go down to the central bus station in Johannesburg, find somebody who speaks your language, negotiate with them to take uh, your money. It can often cost you know, 15, 20% uh, of the principal and fees, sometimes up to 50% with other incidentals. It can take anywhere near uh, as long as two weeks for the money to actually physically move uh, to Lelongwe and then the same process happens on the other side. So it's, I suppose it's a bit like running in treacle. And so what we've tried to do is understand this scenario and say, you know, what are this is the bouquet of uh, customer service uh, cornerstones that we can provide that ensure that, you know, we can provide an alternative service. And so we're really trying to ensure that uh, it's very easy to use, uh, that there's a plethora of choice in terms of access points or digital engagement channels that you have. Uh, there's got to be heightened convenience so that opportunity cost doesn't exist. So we've got 320,000 pay-in and pay-out points. And fundamentally, it's got to be underpinned by speed. So it has to be instantaneous. Uh, and, and you've got to build an ecosystem that is you know, supported by a brand that people get to know and trust in order to get those uh, network externalities. And I guess the, the very direct human implication of this is, you know, kids don't get pulled out of school because they haven't paid fees. And I don't need to go to a, what we call a machinista here in South Africa and, or a loan shark, I guess, in other parts of the world to get kind of an informal loan. Most of our customers are, you know, sending 50 to $150 one to three times a month. And that money is being sent to loved ones in their sort of close nuclear family. And the money in turn is used predominantly to pay for school fees, to put food on the table, to ensure that you know, they have access to basic medical supplies. Uh, and in the absence of these, I suppose, lubricated, predictable remittance flows, you would have to look at alternatives to, to bridge those gaps and, and so take you know, access to informal loans with sort of usury interest rates and whatnot. So if you can underpin the predictability of flows, if you can ensure the consistency, if you can make it as efficient and affordable as possible, there's a lot of positive network effects that happen from people being able to utilize those funds when they want to in the manner that they choose to. We know things have moved on in Africa quite a bit since Makuru was launched to kind of combat Zimbabwe and hyperinflation. The pandemic has obviously then kind of triggered a new bout of this kind of big digitization. How have you seen the dynamics changing on the continent with regard to fintech? I do think that there has been a catalyzation that happened around the COVID-19 pandemic. And we certainly are seeing a secular shift towards greater degrees of digitization or, I suppose, inclusion in the formal financial services ecosystem. But I go back to the point I made earlier, cash is still king. The vast majority of our customers uh, or the customers that come to us, the entry point is, you know, departure away from the informal financial services ecosystem. That remains our biggest source of competitor. But I think there's a question mark around the question of whether cash is still king. It's for how much longer? And so we are seeing these shifts, I suppose, in access. If you think about it, the sort of three 
things that we believe are continuous hurdles of inertia really are access, trust, and education. And as the sort of proliferation of um, mobile phones and I suppose smart mobile phones continues to pace throughout the continent, that becomes a strong, I suppose, provider of ubiquitous access to uh, digital channels. But it really is, it's not something that uh, you wake up one morning and somebody's flicked a switch uh, and there's a single sort of binary transition from an informal offline environment into a a digitized uh, engaged one. And so I think the things that we focus on is ensuring that uh, we digitize all the streams that are necessary to create an environment in which people feel comfortable transacting in. And so first and foremost in those is uh, digitizing the onboarding of a customer when they use their services. So performing digital KYC, uh, which means that you can build a relationship, you can treat them like a customer and not a transaction. Digitizing all the communication uh, as you engage with them, uh, providing a broad array of uh, digital engagement channels. So whether they use the USSD structured text language, whether they engage with us via WhatsApp, whether they're using the latest and greatest version of an app, all of those are digital steps, ensuring that you can digitize the processing of transactions. And I suppose the final step in a sort of broader digital journey is digitizing the store of value or the type of money that they take. And so recognizing that each of those are very important and necessary steps and that they can happen concurrently with each other if you are already a fay with transacting a digital world or whether those are things that people take time to get used to has been an important unlock for us in terms of uh, broadening the uh, addressability of our platform and ensuring that we truly can uh, bridge this cash and digital divide, as opposed to just starting from the point of departure where you try to provide entirely digitized services to customers and look to, to move them across in one big leap. And Andy, you mentioned cash is king, but how much longer? We're obviously seeing huge amounts of increased competition in these spaces on the continent. And, and I think you've seen lots more funding coming onto the continent. Historically, I guess a lot, a lot of that has been seen as that's the big barrier for, for this change to happen. What do you think are the two or three kind of unlocks that are going to be required that's going to further catalyze and, and, and shift the retrenchment of cash, I guess? Yeah, I think competition is fierce and it's wonderful to see because fundamentally, I think it drives innovation and, and customers benefit. But it's it depends, I suppose, on certain segments across both the formal and informal ecosystems. And I think we have always accepted that It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so the things that are important to us that we feel will ensure that we continue to stay relevant uh, to our customers, um, and and that's our focus point rather than, you know, trying to be better than the competition as to provide the best service to our customers is acknowledge that I think speed to capitalize on opportunities uh, and recognizing the value you can get from uh, partnerships are critical to continuing this very fast, I suppose, dynamic environment of uh, evolution and innovation for our customers. So... I think partnership is is recognizing that whilst you may have a a certain capability that customers need or want, you might not have the infrastructure to access those customers where where they might not be readily accessible in terms of having a platform to engage with you on. And so looking at ways in which you can take your strengths and capabilities and combine those with with others uh, has been a great source of opportunity for us. We have partnered with Tunes, which is a a global payments network. Originally, it it was to uh, bind our our foot print to the strength and capabilities they had in Nigeria. But over the course of the last nine months, we've been able to expand that further afield to places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, 
uh, Senegal and India, and we're really only scratching the surface. And so, you know, there's no ways that we would have been able to parallel process, you know, be relevant to customers in such a broad uh, geography. But by combining their strength and capabilities and, and our network, we've been able to sort of synergistically provide services to customers where everybody benefits. I mentioned that point of uh, speed, and, and I think the sort of perishability of opportunity is important. And if you can recognize and have a bias to action, but appreciate that uh, sometimes you don't have to build everything. You can focus on your strengths, potentially leverage off the, the partnership uh, capabilities of others. Uh, you can deliver something transformational in a, in a short period of time. During the early days of the pandemic in April 2020, we listened to what our customers want. And particularly those in, in places like Zimbabwe and Malawi were saying that uh, the availability of food appropriate prices was something that was creating acute tension. And so in the space of 45 days, we were able to find an appropriate partner uh, in country who could uh, provide the food packs that people were looking for. And we focused on you know, what we felt our strength was, which was uh, providing the remittance flows to ensure that those could be paid for uh, and packaged in such a way that it you know, created a differential proposition for customers in a very short space of time at a time when it was most relevant. And talking about speed, I think one of the questions, and you mentioned building, one of the questions that I hear from, particularly from larger corporates, is struggle for talent. How do you build? How do you move at speed and at pace? Very curious to hear how you guys have managed to solve that problem. It's an ongoing uh, opportunity or challenge or one of the things that continues to give me gray hairs. But I think if you peel it back one of the things that amazed me about Makuru when I was recruiting was that uh, we called it this orange energy. There was this orange energy of purpose coursing through the veins of just about every individual that I met through that um, recruiting process. And so there's a, a very strong call to action by the purpose of you know helping, I suppose, attempting to help people and transforming their lives. And so we've looked to ensure that first and foremost, instead of building bright, shiny objects or chasing after a technology platform for the sort of intellectual curiosity sake of doing it, that we focus on what is relevant to our customers and try and ensure that that's a golden thread that flows through every conversation we have, every thought that we make, every strategic, I suppose, uh, allocation of capital, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if you are trying to do that consistently and, and authentically, hopefully over time, those sorts of things become a, a core part of your DNA and are attractive to like-minded individuals. And so we strongly believe that we want to change the world one uh, financial transaction at a time and are looking to build an infrastructure that enables our uh, customers to benefit from, from that journey and look for like-minded people to build. And, and so we've had a very strong retention of top talent who's been attracted to that uh, rallying cry uh, over time, regardless of whether they exist in Cape Town, uh, Johannesburg or Sarajevo, given how diverse our, our, our sort of talent pool is and, and where employees are based. If I may ask a slightly more kind of operational question, Andy, very curious to hear how you guys think about things like pace of decision-making or regularity of capital reallocation? Because it, sound, it sounds like something that you guys are doing very naturally. When we had essentially one product and one corridor and less than 100 employees, everybody could be involved in everything. And so there was a, this essentially very tight-knit processing and, and you could change your focus, change your, I suppose, sequence of decision-making on a dime. But as we have scaled, as our network has extended to cover more geographies, more products, you know, more customer segments. I think we now serve something in excess of 320 money transfer 
corridors, uh, we've had to think proactively about what it is that we can take decisions uh, centrally and how do we create empowerment mechanisms in local environments where people understand what it uh, you know, means to be somebody who works in Makuru, what's important to us and how we can empower them to parallel process and make decisions uh, in their own environment. It's not easy. It's certainly not an environment in which one size fits all. And we are constantly trying to listen to our customers, listen to our employees, and think about ways in, in which we can make that more efficient. But we have a very clear set of guiding principles. We want to meet our customers where they are. We want to provide them with a plethora of choice. We are fundamentally focused on ensuring that we can address their needs and wants as opposed to providing them with products that they might need and trying to entice them to use. And we are looking to walk them on a journey towards greater degrees of financial inclusion uh, through the mechanism of digitization and doing so in a manner that provides transformational value for them, uh, but does so, I suppose, at a price value equation that ensures uh, that our business uh, derives value therefrom that we can reinvest to, uh, I suppose, continue to scale. Talking about investment, some people might have said publicly that there's a bit of a bubble and that there's too much investor capital rushing onto the continent. I think there are valuations on people raising money at revenue times 500. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of, are we in a bubble? Look, I think those sort of numbers are staggering. It is amazing to hear. On one hand, it's awesome because I think uh, access to capital and the availability of capital and certainly deep pools is ultimately going to mean that there's more choice, there's more opportunity, and we can you know, leapfrog services and the provision of services that are provided to customers. But in some ways, it's a foreign concept to us at Makuru because in our sort of uh, startup days in the early 2000s, this landscape really just didn't exist in an African continent. And so we had to uh, bootstrap ourselves up off retained earnings. And so we were focusing on ensuring that we could find seams of opportunity where we could provide value to customers, but do so in a manner that uh, ensured there was value returning to the business such that we could reinvest. And so what it is going to do, bubble or not, I, I think it's going to sort of intensify the speed with which businesses either grow or fail. And so those that focus on uh, addressing acute customer needs and have big demand pools are probably going to be able to scale quicker uh, because the um, injection of capital means that they can really sort of drive and get to those inflection points. But I think that uh, there's still going to be those that don't necessarily hit the nail on the head in terms of the uh, problem that they're trying to address. And so they will scale but in so doing, they will take a, a smaller problem that they haven't necessarily solved and create a big problem. And so, so perhaps we're going to see you know, more businesses failing fast. Our perspective is that in Africa, we don't have a, a homogenous demand pool. We don't have a homogenous regulatory environment. And so the critical thing that you've got to try and work out and apply judgment to, and unfortunately, there's no textbook for, is how you balance the ability to scale and build a sort of global platform, but uh, recognize that you've got to marry it with understanding the idiosyncrasies and, and differences in sort of local demands, needs, and wants. And, and that's not going to be something that you can throw walls of cash at to find what the perfect solution to it is. Maybe a controversial question for you then. If we've got this kind of Cambrian-like explosion of entrepreneurship and startups happening, and we've got kind of deeper and deeper pools of capital coming in and trying to invest. Do the incumbent financial services players have a future? Look, I think incumbents, particularly big incumbents, and I suppose the biggest financial services incumbents on the African continent are banks and the awesome pan-African ones. I think they have a massive 
head start on all the sort of uh, fintech upstarts in, in so much as that they have infrastructure, they have products, and they have brands. Those of them that are focusing on uh, solving customer needs are prepared to creatively destruct things that they've built previously are certainly going to continue to survive. And so I think there's a great opportunity for them, but it boils down to their sort of philosophies in terms of whether they're trying to protect their turf or whether they are trying to leverage the acute opportunity that exists for all of us in terms of formalizing this massive addressable market that is still informal. So it amazes me sometimes how, I suppose, slow they are to realize those opportunities, how are sort of ensconced in their own operating environment and potentially sometimes a little myopic. But I, but I don't think that that means that there's no future for them. I actually think that they have the wherewithal to provide amazing products and services to the full addressable market across Africa. I think the structural dynamics as they exist today, i.e. big untapped addressable market, very fragmented provision of services, some, I suppose, shortcomings in the way in which they're addressed in the informal environment means that there is a very fallow opportunity field for fintechs who are prepared to have a go, really focused on solving customers, aren't worried about the sort of entrenched solutions that they built over time and are, and are starting from a blank page to really accelerate and, and gain strong toeholds in a fairly short space of time. One topic that's very hot at the moment is, of course, the question of cryptocurrencies. And some African regulators have banned them entirely. Others are more broadly welcoming. How do you at Makuru think about this? And what do you think that has, what implications do you think it has for your business and the broader financial services landscape? I think we see it across uh, two or three dynamics. First of all, customers are looking at it as a investment opportunity. Uh, and so in our minds, it's really just another product or service or asset class. So we're thinking about enabling investing in gold or investing in foreign exchange or potentially investing in crypto. It's essentially the same capabilities that we need to build and find the sort of underlying asset partnerships. Uh, on the other hand, it does have the ability to lubricate the way in which payments happen and exchanges happen, particularly across border. And in certain territories, we actually have utilized those capabilities uh, where it is legal and, and regulated to do so. And you find some efficiencies in terms of the time that it takes for a financial transaction to happen cross-border, uh, the associated cost, and I suppose the investment of working capital you have to make to, to ensure it's fully funded. And then in certain instances, there exists some arbitrage, I suppose, for cryptocurrencies to s essentially be the mechanism of transaction or exchange in the middle if you are looking to go from rands to dollars or CDs or, or whatever it is. And so mm -hmm. because we are a vertically integrated payments infrastructure, we have built the capabilities in the first mile, in the exchange in the last mile, such that uh, if it becomes efficient and great opportunity for us to do so, we would look to incorporate cryptos into that uh, delivery or, or sort of supply chain. We certainly haven't bet the house on it. I think there's a long way to go in terms of um, harmonization of uh, regulatory standards and, and perspectives that a broader uh, set of stakeholders have on it. Uh, and so we welcome anything that increases efficiency, drives down cost and, and ultimately increases our ability to provide uh, services to our customers, but are, are going to continue to pursue this alongside a range of other opportunities. And I guess this question of kind of regulatory harmonization and regulatory certainty, I think, is at the core of helping to unlock some of those challenges not just on the crypto space, but kind of more broadly in the financial services ecosystem. Maybe, Andy, before you go, I'm sure there's some people out there listening and thinking about 
How do they think about building Africa's next tech startup? What advice would you give them? How should they think about kind of the world of entrepreneurship and, and building a tech business on the continent? I would say thank you, lucky stars, that you exist in an environment uh, with a wealth of real opportunities. And so the emerging market environment that we exist in Africa today, the fact that uh, the vast majority of customers are transacting in an informal space means that there is just immense opportunity from uh, enabling customers or potential customers to make small but incremental changes, gaining access to the unlocks that perhaps some of us witnessed 20 years ago when we could first do online banking or, or mobile banking. So there's a wealth of opportunity, but you've got to find the balance between uh, recognizing the tyranny of the urgent or bias to action, understanding that you can't just build cool things and hope that people are going to come. You actually have to do the hard yards to understand what needs or wants or uh, challenges you are going to address in the customer's lives. Try and do so in a fashion that you can estimate the demand pool or the size of the demand pool such you go after um, big opportunities and then translate that into action. And, and I think in translating into action, you've got there's a trade-off. You've got to focus on the customer need. You've got to ensure that you can execute with conviction, that you don't necessarily be distracted by bright, shiny objects, but that you recognize that in order to grow, you do need to expand your horizons and introduce newness at an appropriate pace. I think one of the things that you really need to focus on is being agile. I think that's an overused buzzword, but there's a reason for it because we're not talking about being a dexterous gymnast, but you're really talking about a mindset, an ability to realize when you have to double down, when you have to pull up. One of the things that I learned from a retail environment was the importance of feedback loops and very short feedback loops. And I think that's critical in applying agility in an entrepreneurship environment. You need to listen to your customers. You need to get that feedback from them in terms of whether your propositions are resonating with them or whether they don't like them. And being able to ensure that you can harness the feedback will ensure that you can make changes, continue to test, uh, improve, uh, and drive your product forward. This means that you need to accept that sometimes you are going to fail and you have to be humble to ensure that you can learn the necessary lessons from potentially failing, but build that into the product development and uh, uh, capability build lifecycle that you have. I think failing is okay. The lessons learned from it should be embraced, but try to ensure that you fail fast and that you do it infrequently. And fundamentally, I think that you've got to believe in yourself. And that is a soft skill, but there are many unbelievable opportunities or propositions out there where people just haven't backed themselves. And so we are awash with opportunity on the African continent. If you can find the right niche uh, and ensure that you have you know, the thick skin to uh, wear some of the uh, storms that are going to come, but believe in yourself, then truly the world is your oyster. Well, this has really been a fascinating conversation. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make, Andy? I think one of the sort of overarching uh, philosophies and mantras we have at Makuru when we try and ground ourselves in terms of what we are trying to do is that I think it, it distills down to three bullet points. We are essentially trying to provide access uh, to build trust and to facilitate education. I think those are the foundational elements of any journey towards financial inclusion 
and greater degrees of digitization. It's those philosophies that drive the way in which we try and provide our services to customers, how we try to take them on small but continuous incremental change journeys towards greater degrees of digitization, as opposed to this big binary switch philosophy where you provide everybody with a wallet and then you try and build a customer base and and think about how you then generate a harmonious relationship afterwards. And I think by focusing on driving access, trust and education, on appreciating that if you can empower one customer as an individual to embark upon a journey towards greater degrees of digitization, if they then transact in an ecosystem where uh, that benefit then flows over to other customers or people in their daily lives, that you can very quickly have strong secular shifts at a societal level um, by empowering people to take control of their own financial destinies. And that's exceptionally important for us. We never underestimate the uh, ingenuity, the human spirit, and fundamentally what we're trying to do is to enable our customers to move forward and ensure that we can grow a change and prosper alongside them. Brilliant. Andy, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been wonderful for hearing from you. And I think that set of fairly profound uh, final thoughts are an inspiring message for all our listeners. Thank you so much, Andy, for talking to Zara and I and sharing your experience and insights and passions. And thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of our McKinsey Africa podcast series. Look out for the next podcast in this series on Africa's fintech industry. We'll be bringing you perspectives from other fintech leaders on the investment opportunities and challenges and more on Africa's fintech evolution. You won't want to miss it. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or view some of our recent reports, we encourage you to visit our insights page on mckinsey.com forward slash ZA. We also encourage you to follow McKinsey Africa on LinkedIn and on Twitter by searching our handle at McKinsey Africa. Thanks again for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.